Still waiting on that CD, Larry. <laughs> you know, I, as I was looking at my notes, I realized I have a great failure this morning. In seminary, we're taught uh, before you actually get into the sermon, you need to somehow make comments to disarm the audience. I realize I have no disarming statements. So let me say this, if you're packing today, or a knife over six inches length, or perhaps a sap, please put it under your seat before we begin. Two weeks ago, on March the 2nd, I brought what was the first of a two-part series on the two ordinances of the New Testament church, the ordinances God has given us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we commented at that time that under the Old Covenant, there were many, many physical elements that God had given to enable the people, first of all, to be a part of the covenant, then also to practice their religion and continue faithfully in that covenant life. But the New Covenant is a spiritual covenant. And God has given us only two physical ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Commented on the 2nd of March that we rarely teach on these subjects because we just assume that everyone has a rather full biblical understanding. And yet because of questions that have recently been asked, we realize that isn't true. And so there's a need to teach on these subjects. And so this morning, we bring the second of these on the Lord's Supper. And when you think about the Lord's Supper, it's hard to think of any other subject that has seen a greater number of various theologies surrounding it, various traditions attached to it, in some cases even superstitions surrounding it. And this morning we want to note some of these and seek to sort them out and do our best to not go beyond Scripture and the understanding of the apostolic church. Our text today, the first one that we look at, is Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 17. Now, the record of what we're going to read tonight is also contained in Mark, Mark 14, 17 and following, and Luke 22, 14 and 29. And if you'll read all three of these gospel accounts, you will notice that although sometimes the order of presentation varies, the essential elements are the same. The one exception would be in Luke 22. In Luke 22, 29, he states that Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me, and neither of the other two accounts in Matthew and Mark contain that statement. However, Paul does contain that statement as he gives a description of this night, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. So Matthew, beginning with verse 17, of chapter 26. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, when evening came, 
Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. We'll skip verses 21 to 25, which refer to Judas and not really relevant to our topic this morning. Verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples had met after sunset, for that was the time they were to be to celebrate the Passover meal. And we need to remember what they were doing that night. Remember in Egypt, as the Israelites were being delivered from that land, God finally, after nine plagues, was bringing the tent. And this plague was to be the angel of death passing over the land. And God said that in every house in the land of Egypt, there will be the death of the firstborn, not only of humans, but even the animals in the stall. And there will be no exceptions, except, except for those who have placed the blood of the sacrificial lamb upon the doorposts and the lentil. And they were instructed how to prepare that lamb, that it would be the appropriate one for that night. And so they placed blood upon the doorposts and upon the lentils. And the death angel passed over the land of Egypt, and there was tremendous mourning in all of the land, for in every house the firstborn had died. And the same thing was true among the cattle and the crops, except in that part of Egypt called the land of Goshen, where dwelt the Israelites who had placed the blood upon the doorposts and upon the lentils. And God said, from now on, this shall be a ceremony that you will repeat time and time again throughout your generations. You will take the Paschal lamb and eat it as you were instructed to do on that night. You will take the unleavened bread and eat of it as you were instructed to do upon that night. You won't place blood upon the doorposts and the lentil, but you will celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread to commemorate what this night I have done for you. And so as they were meeting after sunset to partake of that Passover meal, They were celebrating deliverance, but they also were celebrating the foundation of their nation. Because on that night that God delivered Israel from the death angel, the nation of Israel came into existence. No longer were they just a tribe, but now they were a nation. And they had a land that God had promised to them, and 40 years later, they inhabited it. It was quite a night each year. This was the holiest day, the holiest hours of the year for the people of Israel. And so Jesus and his disciples, as very faithful Israelites, very faithful Jews, were observing the Lord's Supper. 
By this time, various liturgies and practices had come to surround it, but essentially it was the same as that which had been done in Israel in Fort, or Egypt in 1447 B.C. Now, can you imagine what must have gone through the disciples' minds when here they were participating in this very solemn feast, this very solemn ritual, when Jesus suddenly took some of the unleavened bread and broke it and began to pass it among them and say, all of you take and eat, this is my body. What? (laughs) What? And then, as the last cup, the cup of blessing was to be offered, he took it and said, all of you drink of this. This is the new covenant in my blood. What? You see, he had not yet been to the cross. And even though they obeyed him, they didn't fully understand it. And later that night he said to them, and John records this, that I will seek the Father and he will send you the Holy Spirit, another spirit, one just like me, And there are many things I've said to you over the years and you have forgotten them. And there are many things you remember and you don't understand them. But when the Holy Spirit comes, you, my apostles, will remember what I have said for three and a half years. And those things you don't understand, He will cause you to understand them. And then you can proclaim them. And Jude tells us in Jude verse 3 that that was the faith once for all time delivered to the saints. The Greek word is apox, once for all. Any kind of doctrine that comes to us that is any newer than 100 A.D. is not true doctrine because it was given once for all. As the apostles were called to remember everything Jesus had said, they were given understanding And today the apostles still lead the church because we follow what they wrote for us and that which they recorded for us. But can you imagine what must have gone through their minds when Jesus took the unleavened bread and said, all of you take this, it is my body, and then the cup, all of you drink of this because it is my blood. As we say, Luke said that he also said, do this in remembrance of me. I have to be honest and say to you today, there's some textual variance as to whether or not Luke really wrote that. The majority text upon which the King James is based has that. I examined five different textual families thinking about this, and I believe, frankly, the predominance of evidence is that Jesus that Luke did write it. We know Jesus said it because later in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writing to the Corinthian church said, Now, I want to tell you what God gave to me and I am passing it on to you. He said, God gave this to me by revelation. And he records that in that night Jesus said, Do this in remembrance of me. So, We have three gospel accounts by those that were actually there. 
and one by Paul who was not there and yet who was given it by revelation. Remember Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 1. He said, the gospel that I'm presenting to you is not something I got from man. I didn't go to Peter and say, Peter, tell me about it, or John, John, tell me about it. I, I, I didn't go to James and say, James, tell me about it. But Paul tells us that after he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and that divine supernatural revelation had taken place and God sent Ananias to him to tell him what to do, why tearest thou arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins and calling on the name of the Lord. And he was that night baptized. But then he didn't go among apostles saying, tell me about this, but he said, I went away to Arabia. And he was gone for about three years, and during that time, the Lord himself, by revelation, gave him what the uh, disciples had learned by spending three years with Jesus. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Paul, to have the Lord, the glorified Lord in some way? We know nothing about it except Paul says it happened. And so when he preached and taught, what he preached and taught is what he had received from the very glorified God himself. So we have the three accounts of those who were there that night and one account by one who wasn't but was told about it by Christ Jesus himself. What an astounding thing to think about. And so this morning we're going to talk about some of the questions that surround the Lord's Supper, questions that some of you have asked. Number one, what is the true nature of of the elements that we use in this ceremony. Now, churches of various denominations have focused on one of the two statements of Jesus. Number one, this is my body and this is my blood. Some have focused on that. Others have focused on the statement of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me, arguing that it is more important to observe this as a memorial without thinking of Christ's real presence. Those who emphasize this is my body, this is my blood, would argue that it is the real presence of Christ in these elements. Now the most literal view expressed by the group that hold that the very real presence of Christ is in these elements would be Roman Catholicism and some Anglicans who teach transubstantiation. Transubstantiation would argue that when the ordained priest prays over the elements and comes to the time of consecration and says, this is my body and then this is my blood, that the unleavened bread and the wine in the chalice become the very body and blood of Jesus. Now, the accidents don't change. The accidents would be the form, the chemistry, none of that changes, but the substance changes. The accidents don't, but the substance do. And so if one is holding in his hand that unleavened bread, he is holding in his hand the very flesh of Jesus, even though it is still unleavened bread. And one is holding in his hand when he holds the chalice, a chalice of the very blood of Jesus, even though the chemistry and so on is still wine. Now, although this view had been held earlier, 
It was not until the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 that this is made dogma. Later, who the man who probably was the greatest thinker of the, uh, really the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas, who died in 1274, applied some Aristotelian logic to the doctrine. And then finally, the doctrine of transubstantiation was firmly set forth as a part of the magisterial teaching on October 11, 1551, at the 13th session of the Council of Trent. So, this is the official doctrine of Roman Catholicism and some Anglicans, not all, but some. Now, not only that, those who hold to transubstantiation will not only say that the very real presence of Christ is here in the elements, but even the very crucifixion of Christ is taking place in the ceremony. And so in a sense, it is as if Christ is crucified when the Eucharist is celebrated. Now, the, the opposite end of the spectrum are those who say that it's just a memorial. Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me, and this group focuses on that. There was a Swiss priest named Hildrich Zwingli, very devout priest. And he became very concerned as he saw some abuses taking place in the Catholic Church uh, in Switzerland. In 1520, a plague hit Zurich. A third of the population died. Zwingli himself became very sick and was close to death, but he recovered. But after he recovered from that plague, he was never again the same man. He was convinced that we must turn to the Bible. And he said this, if it can't be found in the Bible, don't believe it and don't do it. (laughs) That was his uh, motto. He said transubstantiation... I just can't accept it because after the resurrection, the body of Jesus is in heaven. How could it be really present in earthly bread? He claimed that the so-called consecrated bread was not the body of Jesus, but only a symbol. Now today, Baptists, disciples of Christ, and some other denominations follow the argument of Zwingli. They're called Zwinglians, if you want to know uh, the term for that particular view. And so the Lord's Supper is only memorial. It's just a reminder there's no real presence of Christ, but we remember what he did. Now Martin Luther, also a Roman Catholic priest, interesting when after Luther's consecration as a priest, He was called to officiate at his first communion. And as he stood at the table and began to say those consecrated words, he could not speak. He was so awed that another priest had to step forth and take his place. He had such awe over the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he began, after he began the his part of the Reformation, to say, I really cannot accept transubstantiation. And yet, 
I can't get away from the fact that Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. And so he began to argue that in some sense, the very presence of Christ is there in the elements. And he developed what later came to be called consubstantiation. Luther Luther himself never used that term, but that's a term others later developed to describe his view. Many present-day Lutherans reject that label, but we'll use it this morning just for convenience sake to describe the view. He concluded that the substance, not only the accidents, but the substance of the elements do not change. And yet, when the words are spoken over the loaf and the cup, it is not anything done by the one speaking it, but the very words of God themselves cause the very real body and blood of Jesus to come and coexist with the elements. He said, we illustrate that by taking an iron rod and putting it in the fire. And after a while, the iron rod becomes red. And so you have both the fire and the iron coexisting, even though their accidents do not change. Of course, Luther didn't understand physics and molecular stuff like we do today, but he still put that forth for him uh, as an illustration. But he said, this happens because of the power of the word of God not because of any ability given to a clergyman to bring it about. Now, like we say, many contemporary Lutherans reject consubstantiation. They prefer Luther's original term, which he used was sacramental union. And uh, those who hold this view would say that when these words are spoken and the very body and blood of Jesus come to coexist within these elements, This is true whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. You are still partaking of the real presence of Christ. Then along came Calvin. Calvin looked at what was going on with Luther. He looked at what was going on with Zwingli. He looked at what was going on in the Catholic Church. And he said, there's surely some kind of a compromise we can work. By the way, Luther and Zwingli had one meeting, the meeting at Marburg, to try to work out their differences, never did. And it was over this one issue that they never really were able to work together. Calvin said, well, the the presence of Christ is here, but it is a spiritual presence. And one form, there are various forms of Calvin's doctrine, but one form is called a pneumatic presence in, in which... The, the real spiritual presence takes place because the Holy Spirit brings that real presence into the elements. It's miraculous, it's mysterious, but by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit comes. But only if communion is being observed by one who has true faith. In other words, if one doesn't have true faith, he could be at the table, partake, and it doesn't happen. But if one has true faith, the Holy Spirit has entered those elements, and it does so. And these would say, we don't want to argue about technicalities. (laughs) Now, you might ask, isn't all that interesting and confusing? (laughs) But what is the view 
of the Lord's Supper or what is the Eucharistic theology held and taught by Tulsa Christian Fellowship. I think without question, we do not teach transubstantiation. First, none among us is a priest who can cause that to happen. But on the other hand, and I speak only for Jim Garrett personally, not for the elders, it is difficult for me to defend the memorial view. But the elements are no more than just unleavened bread and grape juice, and that's all they are. Not only because Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, but notice 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Here's what Paul said. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? It is hard for me to ignore those kind of statements and say it's just a memorial. Yet realizing this, at TCF, we leave to each individual how he, he or she in spirit receives the unleavened bread and cup. We have to leave it that way because this is a marvelous mystery of God. And yet, it's a very sacred moment. Very reverent moment. When we hold in our hands the unleavened bread, when we hold in our hands the grape juice or wine, by the way, do you know we have grape juice in our grocery stores today because Charles Welch, who was a member of the Wesleyan Methodist Church and didn't believe in alcohol, tried to come up with an easy way to have grape juice for communion and not alcohol. Uh, prior to Welch, uh, people did it by putting raisin stuff or boiling it and recondensing it of this particular domination. But Welch developed a means of pasteurization of grape juice. And so that's how the grape juice we have in our grocery store shelves today is possible because Charles Welch devised an easy means for Wesleyan Methodists to have unfermented wine in communion. Isn't that interesting? Matter of fact, I had a letter. Uh, this, this, this gets complicated. I'm not even going to get into it. It's whether or not we should do. Another sermon bill will explain it. <laughs> <laughs> Yet how can we say that we are not holding in our hands something very sacred when we hold in our hands the unleavened bread and the cup, the body and blood of our Lord in some sense. Paul wrote, now the Corinthian church was very faithful every Sunday in having what they call the Lord's Supper. Uh, when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, many people were there from many nations, and some didn't go back home. They stayed and they were part of the church. They didn't have houses to stand, they didn't have jobs. They ran out of money. They had had to help them during the uh, uh, Pentecostal time. And so the early Christians began to have really communal existence, not communist, but communal. 
and they had their meals together. And in time, these meals became a love feast. It became called the agape. And, and so in many churches, having the agape every Sunday morning was as important as everything else. And in Corinth, it got to the point that they were mixing in the Lord's Supper with the agape, and some were getting drunk, and they were eating like gluttons. And so Paul had to deal with that, and we'll not go into great detail, because that in itself is an interesting study. Paul said, shame on you when you meet. It's not to take the Lord's Supper, even though you're doing all this, and here's why. Some of you getting drunk, some are overeating, blah, 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 blah. He said, if you want to eat, go home, you have houses to eat in. But he said this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What a startling thing to think about, isn't it? But then look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11. And this is one time, one time, and there are probably more, but one time in which the New American Standard Version is inferior to the most of the other versions. In a moment, we'll point out why. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The King James eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The NIV, not recognizing the body of our Lord. The New King James, not discerning the Lord's body. The New NLT, not honoring the body of Christ. The Revised Standard Version, without discerning the body. All of these versions, in my view, are superior to the New American Standard, and here's why. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. The Greek word here is krema. It refers to a sentence that a judge would pass down on someone. And so there's that kind of judgment that is pronounced upon you if, and the New American Standard first says, if he does not judge the body rightly. The Greek word here is diakrono. Diakrono carries the idea of separating, discerning, discriminating, which you see in all those other versions. So what Paul is saying is this. If you come to the Lord's table and you're not here discerning the body of Christ, if you're not honoring these elements as the body of Christ, if you're not discriminating between them and just common bread and grape juice, then God has pronounced a sentence upon you. That's a dreadful thing to think about, isn't it? And so when we come to the Lord's table, we must come with reverence and awe. Most of you know that I prepare the elements every Sunday except the last Sunday of the month. And after the tables are set, I always kneel and pray. Oh God, hear my prayer. I ask that today when we come to this table in ways that none of us can understand, may your awe be here in such a way that we cannot deny that you are at this table. And then I do the same thing with that table. 
It is important that we come to the table with awe and reverence, for we're meeting, in some sense, the body and blood of our Lord. Prior to partaking, it is important that each person examine his own heart, recognizing that we're imperfect. We come to the table, acknowledge that it is God's grace that saves us and that's made available to us through the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not saved because of any worthiness on our part. Roman Catholicism emphasizes confession. Some kind of confession at least needs to happen between us and God before we come to the Lord's table. In the years before I came to TCF, it was the custom to have the Lord's Supper observed right before the sermon. I liked it that way because as I sat up here on the stage in a chair all by myself and had the loaf and cup in my hand, I asked the Holy Spirit to take me back over the previous week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every day. Lord, is there some place here where my words did not reflect you? And usually something was brought out. Is there a deed or a thought here that was not honoring you? And God invariably would bring something out. And then I could repent and take of the loaf and the cup and with a clean and holy spirit come into the pulpit to bring the word of God. It is important that we allow the Holy Spirit to be our auditor before we come to the Lord's table, confess sins, repent, and from him receive forgiveness. Some people ask, well, why does TCF have communion every Sunday? You know, for many years I... I really felt that this was an ambiguous thing. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, but he didn't say how often or when. But even as we did with baptism, I began to explore, well, what did the post-Pentecostal New Testament church do? And what did those churches do that were either instructed by the apostles or a companion of the apostles. Let's look at that. In Acts 2.42, immediately after the foundation of the church, we read they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, most of our English versions leave out a very important element of this verse. And that is this. Every one of these four elements is preceded by a definite article. It isn't just the teaching, the apostles' teaching, but the Greek literally says the teaching of the apostles. It doesn't just say devoted to fellowship, but the fellowship. Not just breaking bread, but the breaking of the bread. Not just prayers, but the prayers. And when you have a definite article prior to a noun, that means something specific is being referred to in this expression. 
And so it just wasn't the apostles' teaching. But, and again, in Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you put that first in the order of words. And so it, it is the, the teaching of the apostles. It is not just fellowship, but the fellowship, the gathered body, the church, that people could hardly wait to be together in the fellowship. The prayers, it just doesn't mean you, all week long you were praying, but the prayers, the, the church gathered for prayer, the times of prayer, the prayers of the church. And it wasn't just breaking bread, which refers to a meal. You'll notice in verse 46 it says, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. There's no definite article there. Breaking bread, having a meal but the breaking of the bread is specific. And that became a euphemism in the early church for the Lord's Supper. So the early church was devoted to coming together for the teaching of the apostles, for the fellowship, for the breaking of the bread and the prayers, a reason to be present every Sunday. <laughs> Thank God for the example, Bill Sullivan said, you know, Bill's on vacation, or he has been, and last Sunday he was here, and this Sunday is here, and he's been all the way to Iowa. He's been all over the country, but he made it back on Sunday. What an example. Thank you, brother. Throughout Acts and the epistles, when a description is given of a Sunday meeting, the presence of the Lord's Supper is mentioned or implied. Even in the Corinthian letter, you notice in verses 12, 13, and 14, Paul is proscribing, not prescribing, but proscribing how you handle a service if you have people manifesting these various gifts. But if you notice in the chapter before, I'm rather, you have chapter 11, he's saying, Something's wrong because you're not having the Lord's Supper in the proper way in your meeting. So even there, you see it. And then the earliest documents that we have in the post-biblical letter, one's written in just a very few years after the death of John. They describe the meeting of the church around the Lord's table. Let me read a couple of them for you. Now here's the Didache. The Didache was composed, composed around 120 A.D. That was 20 years after John the Apostle died, after the book of Revelation had been written. I'll not read it all, but here's one excerpt. Do not let anyone, do not let anyone eat or drink of your Eucharist. They call it Eucharist because that's the blessing. Except those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the statement of the Lord applies here, do not give to dogs what is holy. And by the way, that's always been the view of the church. The Lord's Supper is only for baptized believers. That's the view held among the elders of TCF. On the Lord's Day, when you have been gathered together, break the bread, celebrate the Eucharist, but first confess your sins so that your offering may be pure. If anyone has a quarrel with his neighbor, that person should not join you until he has been reconciled your sacrifice must not be defiled. In this regard, the Lord has said, in every place and time, offer me a pure sacrifice. I'm a great king, says the Lord. My name is great among the nations. That's the Didache, talking about the Sunday service 
100 or 20 years after John died. The, uh, here's a writing by Justin Martyr. Now, Justin Martyr was writing, trying to explain to the Roman governor what Christianity was all about. And so he wrote several, quote, apologies. He described to the Roman governor what they did on Sunday. And again, rather than read the whole document, let me just read some pertinent parts. No one may share in the Eucharist with us unless he believes that what we teach is true, unless he has been washed in the regenerating water of baptism for the remission of his sins, and unless he lives in accordance with the principles given us by Christ. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members whether they live in the city or outlying districts. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there's time. When the reader has finished, the presiding elder of the assembly speaks to us. He urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have just heard in the reading of Scripture. Then we all stand up together and pray. At the conclusion of the prayer... Bread and wine and water are brought forward. The presiding elder offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability. Isn't that something? Best of his ability. And the people give assent by saying, Amen. The Eucharist, Eucharist is distributed. Everyone present communicates. And then the deacons take it to those who are absent. In other words... 140 A.D., they made sure everybody got the communion every Sunday, even those who were sick and couldn't come. So every Sunday, it was there. And that's really what we see where we have any kind of a glimpse at all of the gathering of the early church in Scripture and in the early church immediately after the death of the last apostle. As a matter of fact, The Lord's Supper was present every Sunday in every service until only the most uh, recent centuries and for various reasons. One reason in America, because the belief was you could only have the Lord's Supper unless you had an ordained clergyman and because ordained clergyman had kind of circuits and so you only had communion the Sunday he was there. That's one reason it started being changed uh, here in America. I personally have the view that one of the real reasons we see the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day not being what God intended for it to be. And that's because, first of all, the cross has been removed. We may not have a cross on the wall, but we need a cross. And we face the cross when we come to the Lord's table Paul described some Corinthian Christians in 1130 because they weren't approaching the Lord's table in the reverent way. He said, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep and and argument. Well, is he talking about physical sickness and sleeping meaning physical death? I think the NLT goes that way. You can argue one way or the other, but the point is failure to come to the Lord's supper in the right way results in bad things. And 
And I believe today one reason we see a church that in many ways is just a quarter of an inch deep when it comes to spirituality is because the Lord's Supper is not a center part of their Sunday gathering. It's the very center of really why we meet. It's not surprising sometimes to have somebody comment, you know, the Lord's Supper is the, to me the most important spiritual thing that happens while we're together because that's the way God intended it to be and that's the way it is one thing that is important when we come to the Lord's table is that we show forth the Lord's death until he comes this is a proclamation of the cross and it's also an expression of our faith in the cross and we gather as a family and I most of the time are the one that prays, I can't keep from thanking God that those of us who are in this circle are going to spend eternity together. And it's because as we partake of that loaf and cup, we're declaring our faith in the cross of Jesus, and that's why heaven is ours. We proclaim the Lord's death and our faith in it, and our trust in it, every time we come to the Lord's table. Let me close by reading that entire passage from 1 Corinthians 11. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat this which is broken for you is my body. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh in an unworthy manner eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Dear God, we thank you that you recognize us for who we are and how forgetful as humans we are and how easy it is for our minds to be so consumed and occupied by all the things that crowd upon us in life that it is easy for us to remove the cross from the center of our lives and our churches. Thank you for the Lord's table that forces the presence of the cross upon us. Through Jesus, amen.